two weeks ago when we met, uh, we had discussed Satan. Um, I thought we were going to cover like three topics, but, I, you know, the study of Satan ended up being such a, I mean, it's so good and helpful, I think, to understand how Satan operates and, uh, and what's expected of us in terms of resisting um, his, uh, his temptations to us, his attacks against us, um, and, and understanding how he operates, understanding his MO, if you will, um, I think is, is crucial to that. And as we go through Ephesians in the morning, I mean, spiritual warfare is really a strong theme throughout that letter. Um, and so we're going to learn and, and dive more into that as we continue to study Ephesians. Uh, but uh, tonight, as we continue in the statement of faith, we got a couple of topics following our discussion of Satan. And one is with regards to creation, and the other one is with regards to the fall of man. Um, creation and the fall of man. And so of the creation, we have a very brief statement and just only a few verses listed, but this in itself could end up being a, a pretty rich uh, discussion. Um, of the creation, the statement reads, We accept the Genesis account of creation and believe that man came by direct creation of God and not by any form of evolution. Now, this is very interesting because when did, when did the theory of evolution take place uh, yeah it was like the mid 1800s so if we're in the church before the mid 1800s this statement doesn't need to be made right and my point is that you know the statement of faiths from church often evolve as a result of the various attacks that happen upon scripture so as people start to attack scripture and really it's not so much the attack of evolution, but the fact that a lot of Christians are starting to argue that evolution and the Bible are not contradictory, that they're totally complementary of one another. And so a lot of these statement of faith, and especially this statement, was made exactly to refute that, that that's not what we support. And they call that theistic evolution, you know, this idea that, you know, evolution was brought to us by God. Um, and in fact, I remember the very first, um, I think, Sunday morning um, adult school that I taught. When I first visited, I came early in the morning before I preached. And, and I went through Genesis 1 through 11. And that was one of the things I touched upon, thinking to myself, okay, I'm going to find out where this church stands. And so I just threw out that statement and said, okay, who's, uh, who believes in theistic evolution? And none of you raised your hand. And I was like, okay, this is my people. <laughs> this, is, uh, th this is my people. But this idea of the theistic evolution... Um, how would you argue against it? What, what is our argument against theistic evolution? Yeah, give me some arguments. Joe. God created on each day of creation, he said it was good. Yeah. And if it's evolution, that means it's changing supposedly for the better. Right, and right. If God already says it's good, and then after day six, very good, how can it get better? Yeah, in fact, let, let's turn to Genesis 1 and, and take a look at this. And the theistic evolutionists, um, they do have an argument back for this. Um, they do have um, their, um, I guess, portrayal of what Genesis 1 says. Do you guys know what the argument from a theistic evolutionist would be? Right, right, right. Um, yes, Gail. The gap theory. The gap theory. Yeah, explain that. Explain that. Yeah. And they think that 
Yeah, so it's, it's, it's complementary to what Joe said, how a day is like can be a thousand years, but we're even stretching even further, where we're saying that in between those days, there was all these large gaps, right? Eons. Um, eons. There, there's eons, maybe millions, maybe billions of years. And in fact, you know, the whole theory of evolution, it's, it, it requires so much to happen by chance. That, that, that's why they have to stretch it to millions and millions and even billions and trillions of years. Um, because that's the only way they can account for so many changes um, happening um, to us. Um, but when we look at um, the creation account in Genesis 1, I, I mean, what's, what, how would we argue, how would you argue that these are 24-day periods? What would you say? 24 hours, sorry, 24-hour periods. The Bible is its own best commentary. And in Exodus um, 20, exactly. verse um, 11, yep. says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Um, so clearly um, uh, the Bible itself identifies yeah. that these were 24 hour days. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great point. Um, because if you're going to argue that a day... Oh, Gail, did you want to add something? Yeah, I got another thing. You know, for millions and millions and millions of years, there's always been seven days in a week. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know any other... That's right. That's right. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, yeah. Linda. That's right. Yeah, the sun goes around in 24 hours. There's always seven days in a week. And, and Linda. There you go. Right, right. Yeah, so, yeah, good point. Um, Rick, Linda. Uh, yeah, there's evening and, and morning, morning and evening. Now, the argument against that is that, well, God didn't create light right away. So morning and evening, what is that? Well, yeah, he knew what it was, exactly. And, um, and God provided the light, right? Um, God, himself, um, God himself was the light. So, I mean, we see a lot of, and so what happens with Genesis 1 is that we have to, well, what happens is that from a theistic evolution standpoint, you have to turn it into something symbolic, something poetic. That It doesn't literally mean what it says it means, that, that really this is, this is meant to be poetry. It's, it's meant, to, meant to be symbolic of how things happened. Um, the problem is, even if you take um, Hebrew linguistic experts, you know, who, who have no, they don't have a dog in the fight. They may not even be believers. But Hebrew linguistic experts who study um, Genesis will say, no, this is not Hebrew poetry. It does not bear any of the marks of Hebrew poetry. This is, this is narrative. It's meant to be understood as, as narrative. And um, one of the arguments from John MacArthur um, is this, is that, okay, if you're not going to take Genesis 1 literally, at what point do you take the Bible literally? I mean, do you wait until Genesis 11? Do you wait until 12? I mean, do you start at the flood? Where do you start? Where do you start taking it literally? And I, I think that's uh, a very valid um, argument. But um, I, I want to give more light to what Maureen brought up. Turn with me to Exodus 20. That, um, that verse that she had just read, it's really the Ten Commandments. Um, so second book of the Old Testament, Exodus 20, this is where we get the Ten Commandments. And starting in verse 8, it's the commandment to remember the Sabbath day. To remember the Sabbath day. So Exodus 20, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. So at this point, there is no question that from verse 8 to the start of verse 10, these are literal days that are being referred to. Nobody can argue that. These are literal days that is being referred to here. But then it says, 
Okay, on the uh, verse 10, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God, for in it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or female servant, your cattle, your sojourner who stays with you. And then verse 11, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Now, if we were to say that day means something other than this 24-hour period, we have a problem here. Because from verses 8 through 10, it means a literal 24-hour period. But the theistic evolutionists have to flip that and say, well, it's literal from 8 to 10, but in verse 11, it's meant to be symbolic. Oh, really? I mean, if someone were just reading this plainly, tell me, what's the indication that this is supposed to be symbolic? Well, there, there is none. There is none. And um, I had this, um, you know, in the Bible study group that um, I used to teach back at um, our old church, um, we had this one individual that was a strong proponent of theistic evolution. And over the course of like five years that he was with the Bible study group, he would bring it up over and over and over again with each new Bible study leader who would come and partner up with me and whatnot. And, and he would bring this argument from um, Psalm 90. Turn with me to Psalm 90. Because um, Psalm 90 is where we get the original reference that to the Lord a, a thousand years is like a day and, and vice versa. And it comes in Psalm 90. Um, Peter ends up uh, quoting this um, later in, in one of his epistles. But uh, in Psalm 90, go ahead and uh, read through this, starting in verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So right there in verse 2, we see reference to God as being a creator God, right? That, that he existed even before creation. He's the one that gave birth to the earth and to the world. Verse 3, you turn man back into the dust and say, return, O children of men. Now, what's that a rever reference to? When he says, you turn men back into the dust, what, what does that mean? Death. Death. Uh, the man has a certain appointed number of days that he, he is to live. And that, that, that's actually going to be the next point in our doctrinal discussion is really the fall of man. But yeah, that goes back to Genesis. So you turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of men. And then verse 4, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. Now, the argument that has been made to me is that, Look, Eki, verse 2 is talking about creation. This is clearly about creation. And then you have this statement in verse 4, right there, right there. So even though we know that the heavens and the earth in Genesis were created in six days, we see right here in Psalm a reference to creation in verse 2. And right in verse 4, a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch um, in the night. And so that's, uh, that, that's the argument that he makes towards me. Yes? Yeah. And his eternal perspective right. concept. Right. It's not talking about us and yeah. our Yeah. I, I nature. Yeah, and I, I would I would agree with that. Yeah, Joe. And also Genesis, like you said, is narrative. Well, this is poetry. What's that? Yeah. This <laughs> is poetry song. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. So th this is real poetry and you're treating it as literal and, and you're you're turning away what's literal and making it into poetry. That's that's a good point too. Yeah, yeah. I mean um, Psalm is meant to be um, poetry. But I think Sarah also brought up a good point that even in verse 2, as, as we're talking about God as a creator God, at the end there, what's being emphasized is not the creation, but the eternality of God. 
right? From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And the argument that I would make, too, is that starting in verse 3, the focus is no longer on creation. What is the focus on when he says you turn man back into the dust? What should that make us think of? Death. Death. The judgment of God upon mankind is already starting to be spoken of in verse 3. And in fact, when you go past verse 4, look at verse 5. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning, they are like grass which, which sprouts anew. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. Towards evening, it fades and withers away. So there's this cycle of life and death. And then look at verse 7. For we have been consumed by your what? Yeah, by your anger. So I would argue that really starting in verse 3, we're, we're starting to see not just God's creative powers, but his destructive powers against us as it relates to judgment, right? I mean, we, we're starting to see this theme of judgment. And if you were to go to Peter where he quotes this, let me see if I can pull that up for a second. That would be 2 Peter 3.8 if you want to turn there. Second uh, Peter, uh, pretty close to the end of the Bible, just before the first, second, third Johns and Jude, is um, Second Peter. And Second Peter chapter three. And uh, if you go to, actually, let, let's start in verse three, chapter three, verse three. And you'll see that the topic here is the coming day of the Lord. Which, when you hear the coming day of the Lord, what's that about? Judgment. judgment. That's about judgment. All right. So know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So in other words, the mockers are saying, look, God has promised judgment from long time ago and it hasn't come. It hasn't come. Verse 5, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. So Peter makes reference back to the uh, judgment of the flood. By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for what? For fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And then look at verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the day, with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. So when Peter references that verse from Psalm 90, in what context is he referencing it with? Judgment. It's with judgment. Yeah, it's, it's, it's with judgment. And guess what? When you go to Psalm 90, what is it about? It's about God's judgment. It's about death brought to us by judgment. So my argument there was that, look, if you look at the context of how Peter uses that verse, it's about judgment. And if you go to Psalm 90, by the time you get there, it's talking about judgment. It's talking about God's judgment. Yes, Linda. Well, also when it said that back there about, um, you know, how the Lord's going to talk about it, where is it, like you're waiting on it. Yeah. Well, to us, it seems like, well, why isn't it happening now? But see, to God... All eternity. That's right. This is a small space. To us, it seems like it's taking forever. And God says, oh, no, it's just like a day to me. Yeah, that's right. It'll come when I say it's going to come. Yeah, and, and if you think about this, um, you know, God made the promise to Abraham about the Abrahamic covenant, right? And, and he told Abraham that your descendants will be sojourners in a land that, that's not their own for 400 years, and they're going to be oppressed. Now, he's, he's obviously in there, he's describing um, their trip to Egypt. And so when you read through Genesis, you, you've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then you've got the account of Joseph and how he ends up in Egypt. Between the end of 
Genesis and the start of Exodus is about 400 years. God made a promise to Abraham, and the last one to mention the promise in the scriptures was Joseph, and then nothing happens for about 400 years until Moses is raised up. And then when you get to the end of the Old Testament, the final book, Malachi, you know, you've got, uh, you've got um, Ezra and Nehemiah, you've got Malachi. Those would have been the last books written in the Old Testament. And from the last books of the Old Testament to the coming of John the Baptist, 400 years at least. It's going to be over 400 years. And so in that period, you can imagine being in the middle of those hundreds of years. It's like, what's God doing? It's totally silent. It's totally silent. You know, so it, certainly there can be long periods of time that go by where God doesn't appear to act. But why are there these long periods of time? Why, why does God go through long periods without acting, you know, upon in, in ways that he says he would act? Look at uh, verse 9, 2 Peter 3, verse 9. Peter, I think Peter answers it right here. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing for any parish, but all to come to repentance. Um, so God has a plan. He, he's got a plan with eternity in mind. And we don't know how, long, how much longer this is going to go on for. What we do know is that we're closer than ever to the end. That's true each and every day. We're getting closer to the end. It could happen today. It could happen thousands of years from now. We just don't know. Um, but, uh, but we, and, and I would be foolish to try to... You know, <laughs> History of the church has been laced with so many fools who tried to predict the exact day of when the Lord would return. It's so many books sold. Yeah, Joe. I've even heard, like you said, 400 years from the end of Genesis to Exodus, approximately 400 or more from Malachi to John the Baptist, that from the resurrection to the second coming will be 400 years. Yeah, and that, that didn't happen. Right, right, right. Yeah, and that's, that's where you get, you get caught up in the numbers. You're like, oh, there, there's, there's a pattern in these numbers. This is numerology, right? This study of these numbers. And, and you know what? The, the Lord has his plan. The Lord has his plan. And, and you know what? This is, the most, this is the best period of time to be in because all of Revelation has been revealed. We know what's coming. We just don't know when it's coming. You know, everything that the Lord has revealed that needs to reveal to us in terms of what we need to do to be saved, how we are to conduct ourselves, the hope that we have in the future, it's all been revealed in the scriptures. You know, we have the complete revelation of God before us. And, um, and, and we look in society, we look at America. You know, America was founded on Judeo-Christian values, right? Um, you could argue whether the founding fathers were truly believers or not, but certainly there were Judeo-Christian values that undergirded this nation. But those values are starting to disappear. They're starting to whittle away, aren't they? I mean, slowly you're, you're starting to see the values that we get, the morals that we get from the Bible are, are under attack. They're being challenged. Yeah. Well, you know, and, it, and, and for a while it was slow and it's ever it's, it's it seems to be increasing in speed. I mean, the things that are happening now, I could not have imagined these things happening just a few years ago. I mean, just a whole set of vocabulary. I mean, just we were talking about the whole gender fluidity thing. And I just saw a tweet from a um, female reverend, um, a tweet um, that said something to the effect of um, if your theology does not lead you to fight against the patriarchal. Um, cisgender heterosexual um, group of people, then your theology is wrong. And I looked at that, and my wife asked me, "What's cisgender?" Yeah. Cisgender, C-I-S gender. That's that's the term now for a, for a person who actually identifies their gender with how they were biologically um, born. 
uh, how they were identified at birth. That's, that's what a cisgender heterosexual um, is. And, and now, you know, we're, we're seeing them kind of belittled in, in these kinds of uh, statements and terms. And it's, it's absolute insanity. There's a whole set of nomenclature and, and vocabulary that's coming out uh, with this. Um, but yeah, going back to the creation, I mean, the creation account, uh, I, I think, is very critical. And um, I remember, um, I, I remember there's this um, internet uh, discussion board for um, the Logos software that I use. And, um, and one of the rules is that you're not supposed to bring any theological debates on the forum. You're just supposed to ask questions about the software and stuff like that. And then someone um, was asking, hey, where's the, how come we don't have any resources to um, support, uh, you know, evolution? And then I, I responded back. I said, because it's unbiblical. And then someone responded back to me and said, said, hey, we're not supposed to bring theological debates. I said, it's not a theological debate because it's not in scripture. You, you can't argue something that's not in scripture. You can't find a single verse anywhere that, that, speaks towards evolution anywhere. And in fact, turn back with me to Genesis 2. Genesis 2, verse 7. Genesis 2, verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed man of dust, from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. How do you twist that into supporting evolution? Because it doesn't say that God took some creature and over, over a period of time evolved him into becoming man. He's saying, no, actually just created man directly from the dust, directly from the dirt, directly from, from the earth. And so when you get to the judgment in chapter 3, the, the idea that man is going to return to the dust, it goes back to this reference that you were created from dust, and to dust you shall return, right? Yeah, Sarah. That's even interesting because for each of the aspects of the creative week, it was God speaking. Yeah. Just like he formed man, yeah. he spoke it, and it was there. That's right. It wasn't like he said, let it come to be. That's right. He said, here it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, God just spoke it into existence. Um, that, that was the, the, the power of, of God in creation. He just speaks everything into existence. And um, I remember the, um, the, the, the Pope um, making a statement about evolution because I think the current position of the Pope now is that evolution and the Bible are not contradictory. They're very complementary to each other. And, uh, and I remember the statement from the Pope um, was that we should not imagine God being like, um, like someone with a, with a magic wand. And I was like, what? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I mean, by, by saying that, I mean, he's, he's basically saying that we can't, what we're saying is that God spoke everything into existence. I, I think that's what he's depicting that, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be to pick God as, as someone who's just waving a magic wand. Yeah, he just spoke it. Yeah, I mean, by creating this magic wand, I mean, he's kind of mocking, you know, the traditional view of how creation came to be. You know, and this is, um, you know, when at the beginning of the 1900s, when there was the, the battle between the fundamentalists and the Christian liberals, what the Christian liberals really challenged were the miracles of Scripture. So they, they just didn't believe in any of the miracles of Scripture. And so you had this group called the fundamentalists um, who were looking to battle a lot of these Christian liberal ideas that were coming overseas, particularly from Germany, um, you know, that, that really started to go through and say, well, let's, let's determine what's really literal and what, what isn't that we can just kind of toss out. And so there's been many movements of people that look to just toss out all the miracles of, of Scripture. And 
clearly the creation account uh, would be one of them. But you know, one of the uh, this is, I mean, this is so silly because the um, the, the secular view on evolution um, still has to point back to a, a beginning, right? Um, I know Gail, Gail, I know you had debated some one a school professor, a science professor, right? On this, and and you you know when you talk about evolution, you still have to talk about a beginning. I mean, some people talk about the Big Bang theory, right? Well, the Big Bang theory, you're, you're saying that everything came out of nothing, and that's absolutely illogical. That that's absolutely nothing can't produce everything, and uh, you, you know there's this all this talk about chance. Well, everything happened by chance. Well, you know what chance is. Chance is essentially um, a mathematical term. It's meant to discuss mathematical possibilities. Probabilities, sorry, probabilities, and and it requires it requires heuristics, right? It requires past um, data information, you know. So okay, based upon what we've seen, this is the probability that certain events will happen. That's what chance is all about. Chance itself doesn't have any creative powers. It's not an entity. Uh, Walter. Yeah, they'll suddenly just turn into a watch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, yeah, it's it's absolutely silly. And so people they they rely on on this theory of chance that by chance we ended up uh, the way we ended up. You know, but the, the the Bible best explains our existence. I mean, because what well, what's the difference between mankind and all of the animal kingdom? What's what's the biggest difference between mankind and the rest of the animal kingdom? Created in God's image. We have a soul. Created in God's image, though. That's that's what I was looking for. We're created in God's image. And you look at uh, you look at all the animals, I, and this is one of the arguments I make. You know, if you look at um, a, a monkey, a monkey lives the same way today that they lived a hundred years ago, yeah. and a monkey hundred years ago lived the same way they did a thousand years ago. Gail, God yeah, he didn't breathe into the animals. But you you look at humankind; we live very differently than we did a hundred years ago. We actually can build off the knowledge of our ancestors. You know, you know, we, we can come up with technological advances, medical advances. We, we can increase in our knowledge, and yet we can still be completely dumbfounded and stupid when it comes to an understanding of God, right? I mean, that's, that's the blinding of Satan upon this world. That's, that's our depraved nature um, at work, and yet we see the creative powers of God in us. I mean, just the, just the ability to put, together, to, to put together a piece of music, I mean, is really complex, no animals that, that we know of can, can put together a sheet of music and, and, and pull together all these various instruments and whatnot. Sure, you can get birds chirping and things like that, but to, to put together something like what Mozart can put together, you know, some of these classical pieces, you know, the, these hymns that we put together, you know, I mean, that's, uh, that, that's, that, that's the creative power of God put into us, and that's a reflection of the image of God in us. You know, so, so we see so many ways that the image of God is uniquely reflected in mankind, but not in the rest of uh, creation, not in the rest of animals. Um, so it's, um, th there's no logic um, to how, uh, you know, the ev and the evolution theory continues to change, right? I mean, it used to be that, um, I think originally it was like everything evolved from a fish, you know, and then it was like, okay, we evolved from like chimpanzees or something like that. And now it's like, okay, no, it's not that. It's some sort of shared descendant that ended up uh, mutating over time into a, a number of different species. Um, Wes? There's a reason that they call it the theory. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, I, 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 I often say that too, though some theories are, are treated as, as being factual. But you, you know what I say also is that um, the, if, if you hear the term scientific consensus, then it's not scientific. I mean, consensus means that most people agree, but not everyone agrees. Look, if it's hard fact, there's nothing, there's nothing to vote on. It just is. You know, but when you hear scientific consensus, it means that you've got something that is not objectively true. Linda. In my class, we just read an article about this, and I asked the kids, I said, let's go over here, what is fact? Can be proven. Yeah. What's opinion? What do you think or feel? And I said, what do you think about this? <coughs> it's an opinion. <laughs> I mean, these are 10-year-old kids. Yeah. It can't be fact. It's an opinion because it can't be proven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, that's uh, yeah. That's that's absolutely right. And and with science, um, we, we have to remember that um, there is a objective element and there's a subjective element. Uh, so we 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 tend to view science for whatever reason. The secular world views science as if it's all objective, but it's not. Um, there is objective data, so there's kind of empirical data that we can look at um, and and we know what's there. Um, but then there's the interpretation of that data. That's subjective, and it all gets grouped under science, you know. And, and science is always changing. I mean, in terms of subjective data, subjective interpretations of that data, it's always changing. There was a time where um, scientists thought that um, human beings had gills, like fish, when they were in the womb of their mother. Uh, that that uh, you know that was like I don't know 50 years ago or something like that. Um, but yeah, that was actually taught in schools that that babies have gills. That's how they're able to to breathe while they're in the the mother's womb. That was science. Was that more than 50? Yeah, yeah. I... <clears throat> well, I have friends who are um, in their 50s. I remember being taught that, so that's why I was... Yeah, yeah. So that was just my guess. Was... I actually don't think it was that long. I'm, I'm going to look that up. I'm going to look that up. Because I, I have friends that are not too much older than me, and they, they remember being taught that specifically um, in, in school. So, I mean, that, that really wasn't all that long ago. And, and the food groups, I remember being, being raised saying that you need to have like four servings of meat and, you know, to, to four servings of bread or something. I can't remember the exact numbers, but now they're, you know, that's all been turned upside down and, and put on its head now, right? Yeah, it's gotten smaller and, and yeah, now, now diets are much more elaborate and much more sophisticated. But anyway, my, my point is that science is always changing. It's not nearly as objective um, as people make it out to be. And they look at us like we're fools, but... Look, we're on the unchanging word of God. This has never changed through the ages, you know, and, and the people that, um, that, that end up, um, you know, looking the smartest over time are just the, the people that just stood firm on the word of God. And so I think there's going to come a time where people are going to look back and say, I can't believe Christians bought into evolution. Um, yes. The bottom line is that people either accept the creator-creature distinction yeah. or they will refute, deny it and push against it and do everything to do anything other than a creator-creature distinction. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the point where are you going to accept a creator-creature yeah, distinction yeah. and the responsibility that comes with that or right. not. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and for for unbelievers that's absolutely true. I mean, I just what's mind-boggling is um there are some very great theologians who I read um, a lot of materials from who I, I respect um, and, and to are, are far more accomplished than I ever will be. And they bought into the theistic evolution. And I don't get it. I, it's like, you know, you're, you're so sharp. You know the scriptures so well. You know, how, how can you, you know, how can you just compromise like that? But, you know, those, those things happen. Um, so that's the, let me, let me go back to the statement here and, 
see if we've um, covered all this. I think it was a pretty simple statement. We accept the Genesis account of creation and believe that man came by direct creation, so not by evolution, not by um, alternate forms or whatnot, and, and not by any form of evolution. So I, I think we, we've got that. Uh, the other verses here, John 1, 3, all things came into being through him, through Christ. So John shows us that Jesus Christ was um, the agent of, of creation. Um, Colossians 1, 16 through 17 show us also Jesus was the agent of creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth. Um, and so I think we, we've covered that. Now let's take a look at the, the fall of man. We've, we've talked a little bit about it, but the fall of man, we'll read through the statement. We believe that man was created in innocence under the law of his maker and by voluntary transgression fell from his sinless and happy state in consequence of which all of mankind are now sinners, not only by constraint, but by choice, and therefore are under just condemnation without defense or excuse. Now, there, there's a lot being said there. In fact, that's all. I think that's all one sentence. They're mimicking Paul here. They're putting together a lot of ideas together in just one sentence. Uh, but let, let's, uh, let's break this down. We believe that man was created in innocence under the law of his maker. So what's the importance of that statement? Created in innocent, innocence. Sinless, right? So that, that's in Genesis 1 when God says it was good. We believe it was good, right? Um, and uh, then there's also the question of um, how was it um, that a good existence could be tainted by Satan? You know, if man was good, if he was sinless, how was it that he could give in to the temptation of, of Satan? Or, or really Eve um, really was deceived and then... Adam went ahead and, and sinned against the will of God. Um, so that's the, the point here of saying that man was created in innocence. And, and the next statement, by voluntary transgression, fell from his sinless and happy state. Because there's a big debate here about, okay, well, if the Lord knew all this was going to happen, I mean, if the Lord had this plan of redemption planned from eternity past, then it was absolutely necessary for um, Adam to sin against God. So in other words, the argument is that, no, this wasn't voluntary by, by Adam. He had no choice but to, but to sin because this was the plan that, that God had from the very beginning. Well, what's the problem with that kind of statement to say that he was forced to sin? What's the, what's the problem with suggesting that Adam had no choice but to sin? There's the fact that man has free will. Yeah, that, that's that's um, yeah, that's kind of entering into this picture, um, and and I would say that Adam in in this uh, in this case um, had the opportunity. I mean, he he was in a good condition, and and he had a choice, and he voluntarily on his own chose. Um, but um, I think what um, what people kind of rail against is well, if 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 God had all this planned out, then Adam must have been in a position where he had no other choice but to sin. But if we say that. Um, then we make God out to be a liar, right? Because God causes, tempts no one to sin, right? But there was some agency given also in the creation. He placed them over something, which there's an agency assigned to that. Yeah, so explain that, explain that. What, the agency? Yeah. Um, that God empowered man to yep. be able to be creative and make decisions and yeah, yeah. Uh, play an active role um, in things created. Yeah, uh, turn to Genesis uh, 1 and look at uh, verse um, 26, 26 through 28. 
Um, this is really um, sometimes what we call the kingdom mandate. Um, God, man was to have dominion over creation. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let them rule. So, I mean, from the very beginning, from the Genesis account, man was called to have dominion over the earth. Um, so I think that's what you mean by agency. I mean, they, they have sovereignty over the earth. They have freedom in terms of how they're going to manage and, and be stewards of, of the earth that's been given to them. And then verse 27, that's when we read God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God created man in God's own image. And part of that, uh, part of that being created in God's image was that they were to rule over God's creation. You know, they were basically the image bearers. They were the ambassadors. They were the representatives um, of God. They were to have dominion over all of um, the animal kingdom. And, and we still, we don't see it today like we would have seen it then. Um, but, I mean, today there's no question that humankind is the dominant species on earth, right? I mean, no animals, um, you know, can... Can, can even come close to even say that they, they rule the earth that, that we do. Now, of course, you know, we, you know, there are certain animals that we wouldn't try to take on with our bare hands and fists, right? Um, but we, we have means, we have methods, we have, we have ways of, of conquering um, things that would be unconquerable by any other animal. Um, so we, we do have dominion over the earth, though it's a very imperfect uh, dominion. You know, we have natural disasters, right? Um, we have earthquakes, we have tornadoes, we have hurricanes. You know, so in some ways, you know, a lot of times our, our dominion over the earth is, is shaken. Um, and and uh, we're reminded quite often that we're not fully in control. But that's all part of being um, in a fallen world. But yeah, th this idea that, that Adam had no choice but to sin um, really would suggest that um, God uh, tempted him, that God forced him to, that somehow he was, he was forced by the conditions that God placed him in. But that, that wasn't the case. And, and when we read through the account of Genesis and the fall of man in Genesis chapter 2, um, there's nothing in there that says that Adam had to do what he did, was there? Right? Um, yeah, Maureen. But uh, Adam, Adam, granted, had free choice, but do the rest of us? Yeah, that's a good question. Because on we are yeah. totally depraved. Yeah, we and are exactly. Sinners. We sin because we're sinners. Right. We are not sinners because we sin. Yeah, yeah, that's it's right. Our nature. That's right. And do we truly have a choice? Well, in individual situations, we do. Yeah. But um, overall, eventually, everyone, uh, every little child, every. Every individual is going to make the wrong choice. Yeah, uh, it's right. not that God wants us to; He does everything He can to stop us from making bad right. choices. Right, But we are going to make the wrong choice. Yeah, and it it brings you back to the creation of the angels. Surely God knew when He created the angels yeah. that Lucifer would rebel. Yeah, why did He create him? Yeah, and that's the other question. He He gave, yeah, you know, creating Lucifer. Somehow the angels had that choice um, of being able to rebel against him, right? <clears throat> yeah, and, and I think this ties into um, the message from this morning, right? That, that we are dead in our um, sins and trespasses. And it really started from Adam. In fact, turn with me to Romans 5.
Uh, Romans 5, starting in verse 12, describes what Maureen just um, said, that, you know, Adam may have had free choice, but really the rest of us, you know, th- this concept of, of free choice is, is really an illusion. And, um, and let me break it down this way, because this, this gets misrepresented quite often. Um, what we learned this morning when we looked at Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, was that man is dead in his trespasses and sin. He's following after the prince of the power of the air, the, the ruler, the, that, that would be Satan, the, the spirit that is working in the sons of disobedience. And even those who are Jewish believers, you know, follow the, the lust of their flesh and whatnot. Um, in a sense, they, they had choice, but they had choice um, of how they wanted to sin, what actions they wanted to commit. Um, really, they had no ability to choose God. We had no ability to choose God. That, that's my argument from that. So when we say free choice, you know, we, there, there's, there's a sense in which we're a slave, not a sense, but we're completely slaves to our sins. We're slaves to our sinful nature. And, and part of being slaves to that sinful nature is that we don't choose God. Now, the, the way this gets misconstrued, the way this gets misportrayed is this idea that somehow people are being prevented from choosing God. No, it's your own nature. You know, we, we, we don't choose God. And we willingly don't choose God, right? I mean, it's, you know, it's like, um, yeah. Isn't there a distinction that we need to make, a delineation between being justified and then through the process of sanctification? Being justified, and when you say justified, justified you mean... in the sense that we're saved. Yeah, by, yeah, justified by, by faith. grace, we're saved. It's right. a gift in and of itself. Faith yeah. is a gift in and of itself. Right, right. Once that takes place, we're heirs to, to righteousness. Yeah. yeah, From then on, don't we contribute as we go along with God and submit to God. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so Which what, what I'm, different. yeah, yeah, exactly. So what I'm talking about when I say the depravity of man, I'm talking about the depravity of man who have not had God acting upon their lives to, to give them a new heart. So once we have a new heart, we have the ability to do what we couldn't do before, you know, but, but we must not make the mistake of, of thinking that unbelievers are being prevented um, from seeking after God because the scriptures are also clear. No man doesn't seek after God. You know, so sometimes this position is portrayed as, um, well, no, you know, all these people are seeking after God, but they're, they're not being saved simply because God hasn't chosen. Well, no, God has to choose because if he doesn't choose, you're going to continue in your own depraved nature. You're going to continue in your rebellion and you would not choose God. It's kind of like, you know, think about, um, you, you know, we all have our kind of preferences when it comes to eating, right? Um, some of us love certain types of food and there's other types of food that we just can't stand that we would never eat. You know, I remember being in Japan and I love sushi, but, you know, they, they had um, they, 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 they had certain dishes that uh, like fermented, um, they, this fermented kind of string bean kind of thing that, yeah, I, it was just, I just couldn't eat it. I would never eat it. Or, or in Thailand, they have the um, fruit called durian, that, which is so expensive and people love it. I just can't stand it. I will never touch it. You know, so it's one of those things that, you know what, you can give me a choice of whether I want to eat ice cream, which is like my favorite dessert, or I can eat durian, right? I, you know what? You can give me that choice. I'll tell you what. Even though you gave me that choice, I'll tell you the choice will be the same every single time. I, I would just never choose durian because I can't stand it. I can't stand the smell. I can't, I can't imagine eating it. Now, you know, my parents love it and, you know, Alice's family loves it. And when I walk into a restaurant, I smell it. I need to walk right back out. I mean, it's, that, that's, how, that's how it is with me. You know, but I, and that's, that, that's, a, that's a very simple comparison, and, and, but I think the reality is even stronger than that, that in, in, in our sinful nature, um, we want to elevate ourselves. Um, we want to believe in ourselves. We want to believe that we are good in and of itself. You know, and when you think about all the ways that the gospel um, gets distorted, it gets distorted by adding works to it, always. 
always. Whenever people talk about, hey, we need to be more inclusive, right? We need to be more inclusive and we need to include this group and we need to include that group and whatnot. And, and it sounds like we're being generous. It sounds like we're being more gracious and whatnot. But in, in essence, what you're doing is you're adding works to the gospel. Whenever you try to include more people who do not believe by faith, then you're trying to justify them by their works. And you end up taking the freedom, the, the, the free gift of the gospel away and start to say that now this is something that can be earned. And we have that temptation as, as people who, who are not generated, you know, who, who are not given a new heart by God. We have that temptation to want to say there's a way we can earn it. There's a way that we can prove it. There's a way. Yeah. Once even worse, we're taking away from Christ's sacrifice That's right. for us on the cross. That's right. We're saying there's another way. He didn't really have to die. We can, uh, we can gain salvation ourselves. Yeah. And I... If that's true, then then why did Jesus ever have to go to the cross to start with? Right, right. that, I think, is the ultimate. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Because if it's um if it's partially by works, then Jesus didn't have to die. I I mean, if we can at, at, at all earn our salvation by works, then what was the sacrifice of Christ for? Right. Um, and so, and Paul even makes that um, point in one of his letters. He said, "Look, if it's if it's partially by works, then it's not of grace at all." If you're saying it's of both, then it's not grace at all. You know, it's either of grace or it's not. Um, and so by grace, we would say it's a, it's a free gift. But looking at Romans 5, look at Romans 5, chapter 5, verse 12. Chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world. Now, obviously, who's that referring to? Adam. Okay, so through one man, through Adam, sin entered the world. And death through sin, so death spread to all men. Because all sinned. Okay, now, then, then look at verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when there is no law. Um, not, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over the one who had not sinned, in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is the type of him who was to come. Now, just those three verses, I could spend hours and hours and hours unpacking that. But here, here's the big idea here, is the, this, this idea that yeah, I mean, Paul makes the point that um, sin was not imputed until the law. and talking about the law of Moses that, that came much later. But from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, guess what happened to every single man who ever lived? They died, except for Enoch, who was pulled up in heaven. Except for Enoch, they all died. And so this is Paul's point, that the fact that they died is proof that everyone was a sinner. Because death came as a result of sin. And after Adam committed that initial sin, even though we didn't commit the sin of Adam, we prove ourselves to be um, inheritors of this sinful nature just by the fact that we sin. You know, so in other words, it goes like this. You aren't sinners because you sin. Rather, you sin because you are sinners. So there, sometimes people have this idea that there's this possibility that we could be perfect, that we could be perfect. You know, but no, because the fact that we are sinners by nature says that we're, we're going to sin at some point. And even those of us who have been regenerated by God, we know how difficult it is through the day. Right. But uh, to your point, the, um, the the believer who has been given a new heart by God, um, we now have a freedom to be able to choose righteousness. You know, that's the whole point of Romans chapter six, that we were once slaves to sin, but now we are slaves to righteousness. And even Peter in 1 Peter says, don't use your freedom as an opportunity to sin, but rather use your freedom to, to do what's good and to do what's right. You know, and that's, uh, that, that's one of the proofs of us as, as believers with uh, regenerated hearts. 
that even in the face of persecution, even in trials and tribulation, that we will still choose to do what is godly rather than, um, you know, what, uh, what most men would choose in their, in their own kind of secular thinking. Um, so right there in um, Romans 5, I, to the point that Maureen made, um, you know, Adam had that initial choice, but from there we all inherited this sin nature. Um, this is uh, he, he, what we call federal headship. Um, we inherited Adam's uh, nature from, from the fall, um, that he, he was really kind of the federal head for all of mankind. But not only that, but then we look at Jesus. Jesus is often referred to as the second Adam. Okay, so we had the first Adam, and the first Adam brought sin and death, and Jesus Christ reversed that. He's the second Adam, who unlike the first Adam, the first Adam um, disobeyed. Uh, but this is this goes back to why Jesus, after he was baptized, um, you know, the Holy Spirit came upon him. And what immediately happened after his baptism? The Spirit, the Spirit did what? Yeah, it descended upon him. But where did the Spirit take him? To the wilderness. To the wilderness. In fact, one of the Gospels even uses the word cast. It's like this, this, this idea of just chucking as hard as possible. The, the Spirit just took Jesus and shoved him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. So that the 40 days of temptation at the hands of Satan, which you can read about in Matthew chapter 4, that, that was really for, for Jesus to be able to do what Adam could not do. Satan did everything he could to tempt um, Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ continued to lean upon the word of God whereas Adam failed the test All right, Clark uh, do, do you think that okay so we have you know how that inherited thing goes along right yeah. and so do you think it gets passed down and passed down and that's why we see today that it's just so much out it's just so yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, people were pretty bad. I mean, when they were talking about death and all this other stuff, too. But, I mean, it's just a, it's a whole other level, right? Well, we'll go back to Exodus chapter 20, the, the Ten Commandments. I know. I mean, that's that one where it says you inherit with your dad thing and your dad thing and your dad thing. Well, we're not, we're not responsible for the sins of our ancestors, but we certainly learn sins from our ancestors, don't we? Um, we, we learn um, habits. Yeah, um, chapter 20, verse 4. Um, th this is the commandment against idolatry. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Um, so we see there visiting the iniquity on the third and fourth generations. And I think it's repeated. Look at Exodus 34. Um, Exodus uh, chapter 34, uh, verse, verses 6 and 7. And uh, I'm probably, you know, next uh, Sunday when I continue in Ephesians, I'm probably going to include this as part of my introduction. But Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7 says, The Lord, um, th this is Moses. He wanted to see the glory of God. He's brought up into a mountain. The uh, God passes before him and says, The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. So God mentions 
this a few different times. And this is not to say that children are responsible for the sins of their father. That's not the case at all. Ezekiel puts that to rest. Um, but we do end up picking up on the habits of our forefathers, and we end up becoming worse. If you read through the book of Judges, when you read through the book of Judges, you know, Israel, are, they got into the promised land, and they were saying, okay, now, obey the law. And you know what they did? They, they just, each generation, they just got worse and worse and worse and worse. They were spiraling downwards and down. And that's what we're seeing around us right now. We're, we are spiraling downwards. You know, I, I remember when watching, you know, I mentioned this morning that growing up, there was only three channels on the television set, right? It was like two, four, and seven, I remember, or something like that. Um, but I, I remember the things that could not be shown on TV. I, I mean, now the things that are shown on TV, it's... I mean, compared to then? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and even cartoons now are bringing in the LGBTQ storylines, right? I mean, some of, the, some of our favorite childhood gar- cartoons now, oh, they, this, this character who's been around for decades now comes out as being bisexual or something like that. Or, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah, I mean, and, and, and the, the things that are allowed on TV now could, could probably barely get into an R-rated movie back when I was, when I was a kid. And that's not that long ago. I mean, that's, you know, we're talking about a few decades and how much, how, how much things have gotten worse. Um, so, yeah, mankind um, in, their, in their sinfulness, they, they, do, they, not only, they not only pick up from the, from the bad habits of those who raise them, but they actually become worse. They, they, they get worse and worse and worse. You know, and that's, that's exactly what's happening. Joe. That, that goes back to number six. That's another proof against evolution. Yeah. 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 That's right. Right. Yeah. And not only that, but I mean, Jesus, um, before, you know, before he was uh, crucified and he's providing prophecies about the future, he even says things are going to get worse and worse. I mean, he even says until I come, things are going to continue to get worse and worse and worse and worse. Yeah. 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 Romans one. That's right. That's a great turn. Turn me to Romans one. That's a always a great passage. Romans uh, 1, verse uh, 18. Um, really from 18 to the end of the chapter, but, but 18 itself is, um, this is a verse I go to again and again to just describe what's going on around us. I mean, I think verse 18 is a summary of, uh, it's always a summary of what's going on in the world. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What happens when, uh, around us, and we're talking about how the truths of God are getting swept away, they're getting pushed down, they're getting mocked and whatnot. Um, what's happening is that all of mankind around us is essentially suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Paul says it right here. We can expect it. So sometimes we, we can get anxious uh, that, that you know, you know, our Judeo-Christian values, our biblical values are under attack, that, that uh, Christianity is under attack, that even Islam gets more tolerance here in this country than, Christ, than, than true biblical Christianity does. And what passes as true biblical Christianity is not biblical Christianity at all. Right. I mean, it's um, it's all kinds of um, twisting of scripture and making it to be more inclusive and, and this and that. But what's happening all around us is that what people are doing is that they are being unrighteous and in their unrighteousness at the end of verse 18 they suppress the truth in unrighteousness that's what everyone does they're just suppressing the truth and then when you go further down 
Verse 24, 26, and 28. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Because in verse 18, it says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And the question is, how is the wrath of God revealed from heaven? Well, the wrath of God, in one way, it's revealed by the fact that God continues to give people over to their lust. He continues to allow them to spiral downwards. He continues to allow them to get worse and worse. The fact that we're seeing society get worse and worse and worse is proof of the wrath of God. Because they continue to spell more and more wrath upon themselves. So verse 24, God gave them over to the lust of their heart, to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. And in verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. This is not saying that God forced them to do it. But God has a constraining effect on everyone. And God is just letting go, saying, you know what? Go. Go to where your heart desires you to go. He's, he's removing that restraining effect in verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And this is why that biblical worldview is so, so critical. Because as we see the world just spiraling downwards and coming up with all kinds of crazy ideas, and there's so much pressure upon Christians to compromise their positions, even by other so-called Christians— you know, we've got to remember that this is what's happening around us. And when we have that biblical worldview and we recognize that the wrath of God is being revealed by the fact that all of these folks are being turned over to their degrading passions, then, then it makes sense to us to just stand firm on what we know to be true and not to, not to compromise. Peggy. Verse 27, it says, Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of women That's right. That's right. Men with men. That's talking about That's right. Gay men. That's right. That's right. And, and churches can't preach this. What's that? Not churches won't preach they, they won't preach this. And, and um, let, let, me, let me say this, and it's, it's a loaded statement I'm about to make. Um, all sins are equal, and yet all sins are not equal. Okay? All right. All sins are equal in the sense that they separate us from God. Okay, all sins are equal in the sense that they separate us from God. All sins are not equal in terms of magnitude. So, I mean, for instance, you know, if, if you have angry thoughts about someone, Jesus says that's like murder of the heart. But clearly that's not the same thing as actually murdering someone, right? It's just that your heart had those desires. Um, and, and what we see here, you know, and, and people, people a lot of times will say that we're making too big of a deal of homosexuality and not talking about the other sins. You know, because uh, I think in um, 1 Corinthians uh, 6, go to 1 Corinthians Six, nine. First Corinthians six nine. First Corinthians six nine says, "Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor." homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor, nor drunkards, nor revilers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So people will point to that and say, you guys only focus upon homosexuality. Well, what about all these other sins? Well, in one sense, it's a good point because we should be examining ourselves to make sure that we're not guilty of any of these sins, right? Because Paul makes a very important point that, that you were once this way, but you are no longer this way. And those who continue to live this way will not inherit the kingdom. That's the point here. So, yeah, if you're guilty of any of these things, you know, you, you don't want to put one on a pedestal and say that the other one's acceptable. Absolutely not. 
But when you look at Romans 1, and it says that God handed them over, that the wrath of God is revealed by handing them over to these degrading passions, you know, to, to men giving up their natural function and going after other men and women doing likewise. Well, what we're seeing is that uh, the, 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 what happens in the homosexual community is, is a certain level of depravity, certain level of just twisting and, and, and just unnatural function that, that it, it's, it's a dark place. It's an absolute dark place. I don't know if you've ever seen the stats of like um, homosexual couples versus heterosexual couples. Um, on average, on average, I mean, if you were to compare the average homosexual person to a heterosexual person and compare how many sexual partners they have, um, the homosexual has far more sexual partners than the heterosexual. I mean, and it's not even close. It's not even like, you know, three versus two. I mean, it's like in magnitudes. Uh, it's, it's in huge magnitudes. Um, and and they, they, they tend not to be as monogamous, if you will, sticking with one partner nearly as long as heterosexual couples do, even in this age of, of divorce. Yeah, Sarah. Uh, there was a time where I had a chance to share uh, in a debate in a sociology club, and I was given the side that was for um, monogamy and heterosexuality yeah, yeah. and all that. And in the opposing side, there was, of course, you know, the basic, you know, that it's hate and right, that. That's right. all that they could come up with. And when I, when I started doing my research, when I started doing presenting it, I knew that I just couldn't come out with Romans and bam. Yeah, and yeah, 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 yeah. And I started looking into the statistics. Yeah. When you talk about mm -hmm. um, what do you call it? Uh, domestic yeah. domestic violence, yeah. domestic abuse, yeah. domestic disturbance. Oh, oh. Um, you talk about yeah. the suicide rates. That's another. Yeah, that's nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, all of it is just unbelievable. Yeah, it, it's like and magnitude higher. Before yeah. the debate, yeah, there was someone that came around because the rest of my partners were scared to even talk about this. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, don't be scared. We're presenting facts. We're presenting something that's substantiated. We're not pulling this from thin air. <clears throat> and he came around and walked around our circle. <coughs> and he said, oh, by the way, you guys, I'm a homosexual. Kind of like taunting us. And yeah, yeah, us. yeah, yeah. And they were, they were really disturbed. And, and, and I'm like, no, don't worry. We've got, we've, we're going to present yeah. facts. We're not. And it's interesting because after we were done presenting, all they could do was say, oh, yeah, you're just being haters. You're yeah, being called. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's basically and the response. After we presented our stats and everything, yeah. the, the thing, everyone was just stunned. And even later on on campus, I came across this guy that had taunted us and everything. And he goes, thank you for presenting a very focused and factual presentation. <laughs> I didn't ask them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I, you know, and, um, and, and, and that's proof, though, that um, even just sticking to the facts, you're not going to change the minds of people that are going down that path. Yeah, but, but what I'm saying is that, um, that, that, the, that the acts that are, cons that, that are committed within the homosexual community, I mean, it, it's, it's dark. It's really dark. I mean, it is, it is you know, there, there's a twisting that happens there. <coughs> Yeah. Almost every family has a homosexual person. Yeah. Almost every one of us. Even though we try very hard, I've tried very hard with mine, and all of our family, none of them have that people, but almost every family here that are here, there's <clears throat> one homosexual. And that's the, that, that's the age that we're living in. Yeah.
that's the age that we're living in. Well, I think Clark. It's been, it's been a problem for a very long time. Yeah. 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 And th this is um, this is this is putting a lot of pressure on them um, on, on on Christian churches. Putting a lot of pressure on Christian churches, and there are a lot of Christian <laughs> churches that. Hey, you know, you're homosexual, that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. We accept you the way you are. And you can even be, you can even be a preacher, you can be a pastor, you can be a reverend. Um, there's, there's a lot of churches that do that, and they affirm that. And, and what you see is that when, when they affirm that, they're compromising on a lot more than just that. I mean, they're compromising all over. You won't even recognize Scripture from, from their so teachings. Yeah, you, you can't judge us. I, had, um, I saw one, I went to a talk, and I, I heard this uh, one... Um, homosexual minister who looked at the crowd and, and uh, you know, there was kind of this discussion going on on the stage, but he looked at the crowd at one point and he said, read the Gospels. Jesus doesn't care about your theology. Whoa. Yeah, I'm like, really? I'm like, okay, so theology, I mean, anytime you make a statement about God, it's theology. Uh, theology consists of doctrines. Doctrines are essentially teachings. And by saying Jesus doesn't care about your theology, you're basically saying Jesus doesn't care that you understand what God teaches. Yeah, so you can just ignore all of what God teaches. Jesus just wants you to love everyone, and that was that was the message. But a lot of people are they're buying it, and, and you know there's a lot more people that seems to be buying it than than people that hold firm to what the Bible says. Um, we've gone on quite a bit. I'm looking at the rest of the statement of the fall of man. I think we've pretty much covered um, everything that's that's here. Um, just that final statement: uh, man is under condemnation without defense or excuse. I don't think we'll get any argument here. Um, that uh, we can't blame God for our own sinfulness. Um, we are sinners by nature, and it's only by the grace of God that we have salvation, which is why we have to evangelize all the more. So let's go ahead and uh, close there, and uh, I'll close with a prayer.